0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting? Or just starting over? On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History
2: Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And we've focused a lot on ghost stories this month for our spooky Halloween series. And all said, though, I think the ghosts have been a pretty diverse crowd, ranging from socialite Madame LaLaurie to headless Anne Boleyn to the real-life fall stuff. But so far, all the ghosts we've talked about have just kind of been there. They've been haunting. They've been making their noises, doing things like hovering over babies creepily, taking headless carriage rides, washing laundry. Kind of aimless, I'd almost say. Well, washing
4: laundry isn't exactly aimless, but okay, but I get for, your point. For a
3: ghost. I get
4: your point, right. There's no real agenda exactly. there. Exactly. Today's ghost, however, who is the Lane ghost, seem to have had a mission, and that was revenge, something that, according to Andrew Lang's 1896 book on hauntings and hoaxes, tended to be fairly common in the 18th century, which was an age where it wasn't unusual to believe in ghosts at all.
3: I mean, it does make sense. After all, a manufactured haunting could be a pretty simple, if creative, way to settle your earthly disputes, you know, your unpaid loans, your feuds. Lang sums it up pretty well with a a quote from his book. When he writes about William Kent, this podcast, Unfortunate Subject, he says, Accused by a ghost, he had no legal remedy. So recently in the Salem Witch Trials, we talked about spectral evidence. I think this is kind of the ultimate in spectral evidence. Good point. When a ghost says that you murdered somebody, actually, when the ghost says that you murdered it, what are you supposed to do? But... Before we get into all of that, we need to, to go back to the beginning. The Cochlane ghost wasn't initially out for blood. Its first appearance was actually pretty, pretty harmless.
4: Yeah, this ghost wasn't out for blood, at least at first. Its initial appearance came in 1759 at... This tiny house on Cock Lane, a road which the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography describes as, quote, an obscure turning near St. Paul's
3: Cathedral in London. So the home belonged to Richard Parsons, who was the deputy parish clerk of St. Sepulchre's Church and also a landlord, an alcoholic and a man pretty deeply in debt. The year before, though, he'd taken in William Kent of Norfolk as a tenant, and Kent was uh, an independently wealthy man. But he had a bit of a family secret of his own. He was living with his dead wife's sister. The arrangement had started pretty innocently back in Norfolk when Fanny Lyons, who was the sister-in-law, moved in to help care for Kent's motherless child. His wife had died during childbirth, but. After the baby died too, the the couple continued to live together eventually as husband and wife, even though they weren't legally allowed to marry. So finally they moved to London, posing as, as husband and wife still, but the unconventional living arrangement proved to be a bit of a liability, especially because Kent tended to make loans to his landlords, maybe a bad policy already. but to make things worse, he actually expected that he'd get the money repaid. This, of course, gave any sort of vindictive landlord, especially one who knew that he was living with his dead wife's sister, fodder for eviction and a way out of the loan, potentially.
4: So it must have seemed lucky when Kent met Parsons at St. Sepulchre's Church and was offered rooms to rent. So Mr. and Mrs. Kent, as they thought she was anyway, got on well with Parsons, his wife, and his two daughters for a little while. But then things started to head south when the naive Kent admitted to Parsons that he wasn't actually married after all. He also loaned Parsons a good bit of money. And then, as you mentioned, and as he'd done in the past, he started to follow up
3: on repayment. Fell into that same old trap. Still, though, the ghost didn't appear until Kent was out in the country on business. And Fanny asked Richard Parsons' little 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, known as Betty, if she wanted to sleep in, in her room and in her bed while Kent was gone. So that night where, when Betty and, and Fanny were in bed together, they started to hear strange noises, wrappings, scratches, taps. Mrs. Parsons must have been pretty rational. She, she explained away the noises as the nearby cobbler who might have been working late at night. But when the noises were heard again on a Sunday, the family started to wonder what was really going on. Fanny, for one, seemed completely convinced that the sounds weren't from a cobbler, weren't from any human making noise. They came from a ghost, and a specific ghost at that.
4: Yeah, she thought that they came from the ghost of her dead sister, who had come to shame her and warn her of her own death. So pretty serious stuff. Richard Parsons investigated the house, even stripping the wainscoting off the wall to see if something was rattling around behind it, but he had no luck. The nightly rappings just got louder, and it's sometimes described as the sound of a cat scratching a wicker chair, just to give you an idea. But it wasn't long before the neighbors started gossiping about the ghost that lived there as well, and the secret history between Mr. Kent and his wife, or as they previously thought, his wife. Well,
3: and that the ghost was her Mm -hmm. dead sister. And so with all this gossip going on, the couple did finally move out of the house.
1: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am
0: wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy, the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: At that point, the noises stopped. And according to Patrick Collins in the Fortean Times, this probably would have been a good time for Kent to just throw in the towel, cut his losses, forgive the 12-guinea debt that he had lent to Parsons. Instead, though, he threatened to sue. And uh, at this point, the timeline gets a little hazy. And it's understandable. A lot of these, a lot of the stories we talk about in October have some sketchy details about them. But depending on the source you look at, either several months go by or up to a year and a half goes by until we catch up again with the Kent family. At this point, Fanny, who is heavily pregnant, died of smallpox and the sound started again in the house back on cock lane and and this time they seemed to come specifically from elizabeth parsons bedside and the little girl also started to suffer from fits and according to charles wilde elliott's book mysteries or glimpses of the supernatural Little Betty described even seeing an apparition of a, quote, woman surrounded by a blazing light. So it's not just these knocks that could be mistaken for a cobbler anymore. It seems something much more.
4: Richard Parsons called a medium who interrogated the ghost, asking questions and receiving answers in the form of knocks. One meant yes and two meant no. This is very reminiscent of the Fox Fox sisters sisters, story and the way that they... Communicated, communicated with the ghost, or supposedly communicated with ghosts, depending on what you believe.
3: But maybe we should act this one out then, Deblina. I think
4: we should. So one of the first questions the, that was asked of the ghost was, "Are you the wife of Mr. Kent? Are you Kent's wife's sister? Did you die naturally by poison?" Was anyone but Kent responsible for the poisoning? Will it ease your mind if the man be hanged? Oh, man.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's bad news for Kent there, The, the single knock, meaning yes. So the ghost, who is now revealed, of course, to be the murdered Fanny Lyons, Picked up a nickname, scratching Fanny, which an
4: unfortunate adds nickname. another
3: element to the the titles in this podcast. But um, it, it, she started to give even more information. You know, this interrogation went on even further, and. Pro- began to provide numerous details on her death the type of poison that had been given her it was arsenic how it was administered through a drink called pearl how many hours it took two to three hours um, all sorts of details although interestingly some information was apparently incorrect i mean aside from the fact that this lady died of smallpox clearly <laughs> but some of the details that the real fanny Lyons would have known were also incorrect Parsons, though, was interested in, in legitimizing this scene, this situation going on in his house. The haunting. The haunting. And called in John Moore, who was the assistant preacher at St. Sepulchre's, to get to the bottom of things. And and Moore believed that there truly was a spirit present and called on a fellow minister, Thomas Broughton, for confirmation. And After these two guys were were on board with the idea of a haunting, other esteemed men started to visit too, which lended a lot of legitimacy to the, the entire premise.
4: The public ledger even wrote up the story, and crowds began to form at the house every night. So it was something of a spectacle. And the public began to truly believe that Kent was a murderer.
3: So this guy who they've never heard of before, who nobody suspected of murdering his wife up until this point, his wife, quotes, uh, suddenly is being accused of murder like pretty seriously. So as interest grew, Parsons could begin to charge admittance to these seances that would be conducted at his home by his relative, Mary Fraser. And the best members of society, of course, got bedside views. I mean, this was a real attraction. It wasn't just um, something you'd read about in the paper. You'd go out and, and, and experience this yourself. But if you were one of the better members of society, you would get to pack in right next to little Betty's bed. And watch and wait while she slept, and see if the ghost visited. It's all—it adds an extra element of disturbing <laughs> um, scenes to to this whole story. Yeah, it's
4: just wild to me. I mean, I have to wonder how did she even sleep? Well, with these people standing around—you
3: you wonder how? Yes, an eleven or twelve year old girl got a full night's sleep with all these people in her house every day. But the just as an example of the kind of people these seances did attract. The Duke of York even attended at one point. Um, Eliot's book, though, has a really good account of one of the seances. It is from a skeptic's perspective, but it gives you a sense of what it must have been like coming into this tiny house, into this tiny room, and watching this kid sleep, hoping a ghost would appear.
4: Yeah, Horace Walpole, a master of Gothic horror and author of The Castle of Otranto, visited one night with friends after the opera. He wrote of the ghost in 1762. He said, A drunken parish clerk set it on foot out of revenge. The Methodists have adopted it, and the whole town of London think of nothing else. He then described the house on Cock Lane. When we opened the chamber, in which were 50 people, with no light but one tallow candle at the end, we tumbled over the bed of the child, to whom the ghost comes, and whom they are murdering by inches in such insufferable heat and stench. We heard nothing. He stayed until 1.30 a.m., but was told that the ghost might not come until 7 when, as Walpole put it, only Prentices and old women would still be about.
3: So he was very dismissive. And, right. and this tactic, too, seemed to be a common one, you know, delaying the ghost. Oh, it's, it's not going to be here until 7, so if you want to stick around all night, be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> You've already paid admittance. Um, or just throwing off the crowd entirely. One description of a seance has Frasier putting Betty to bed, and then about an hour later, running around asking Fanny to to emerge, to show herself or make herself heard. Then when nothing happened, Moore, the, the minister, told the crowd that they were just too loud. They needed to quiet down. They needed to step out for about 10 minutes and just collect themselves. Of course, when they came back, sure enough, Scratching Fanny was also there, the ghost, making her her presence known. So these little tactics of of tricking or delaying or distracting the crowd that had come to to see the ghost.
2: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision-makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: So finally, with this situation that has come out of people believing in this ghost so much, I mean, on one hand, you have the mob, which is spoiling for Kent's punishment, and you have the crowds also gathering outside the parson's home. And both of these things together drive the Lord Mayor to order a special investigation. Reverend Aldrich of St. John's Clerkenwell assembled a company at his home where Elizabeth had been moved. At 10, she was put to bed by a group of women, and a bit after 11, that group, which included Dr. Samuel Johnson, came to her bedside and waited for the spirit. The little girl said she could feel the spirit, but no noises came.
3: And so Dr. Johnson declared that the whole thing was a hoax, wrote an account of it, published that in the Gentleman's Magazine, and it was really the beginning of the end for this idea of of a ghost. And... Poor Betty, of course, wasn't off the hook, though, Elizabeth. Um, she was moved again, put through all sorts of tests. She was at one point strung up in a hammock with her feet and hands drawn away from her body, you know, to prove she wouldn't be able to make any sounds. And after scratching Fanny, the ghost failed to make an appearance several nights in a row after these tests. Betty was threatened pretty clearly that her father would go to prison if she could not um call up the ghost. And that did the trick. I mean, that night, the girl was caught smuggling a board under her clothes and trying to make noises with it in an attempt to save her family, to stop her father from going to prison, Um, which after that point, clearly the, the ghost hoax was over. Although one interesting note, a lot of people who had heard the earlier noises said that the ones that Betty had made with the board under her clothes, which were clearly manufactured, were, were entirely different. The two sounds were entirely different from each other, um, either suggesting a ghost had been making the first ones and poor Betty had just been pressured this final time into trying to save her family when the ghost wouldn't really show up, or, more likely, um, Betty had had some other means of manufacturing the sound earlier. She was right to be scared, though, because her family did end up being pretty uh, strongly punished for for what had happened.
4: Right. In July 1762, Richard Parsons, his wife, and Mary Fraser were all tried and convicted of conspiracy. Moore, the clergyman, as well as a tradesman named James, who was believed to have assisted in this deception, were also convicted, although they got off with reprimands and the order to pay Kent settlement. Fraser and Mrs. Parsons received hard labor, and Mr. Parsons got two years in prison and three appearances in the pillory. So it's a testament to how many people still believed in the ghosts, though, that the crowd at the pillory was unusually quiet each time. And the public actually raised a subscription for the family. And
3: I was surprised by this because I would think that uh, the public, having bought into this idea of a ghost so thoroughly, would be maybe embarrassed and angry at this guy for tricking them and for trying to profit. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, if you if you admit that you've been fooled by this hoax, then you look like a fool. Uh, if you... Consider this guy as a poor, unfortunate soul who's being unfairly punished when there really was a ghost in his home. Then, I guess you're something else entirely. Right. Uh, but you you can kind of get yourself off the hook that way. The goofs really did stick around in the public's imagination, too, though. It, kind of like the Mary Toft bunny births hoax that we talked about on an earlier podcast, and which was about a generation or so before this, became real shorthand for gullibility, uh, just falling for things too easily. And um, I guess while we're talking about Mary, Mary Toft, and you mentioned the Sister's Fox earlier, it does, it's so reminiscent of the Sisters Fox story with the tappings and the wrappings and the mm-hmm. girls playing tricks on people. Um, but I kind of think of it more in the, the spirit of the Mary Toff bunny births. Uh, because the Sisters Fox one is so, it's the beginning of that spiritualist movement of the 19th century. It's kind of a different era than this. Right. This is really in the, the hoax generation <laughs> almost. <laughs> (laughs) Um, and, And like I said, you know, with the public being interested in it, people found opportunities to benefit from it as well in a satirical sort of way. Charles Churchill wrote a satirical poem about it called The Ghost. William Hogarth, who is a famous illustrator, engraved a scene of a seance at Elizabeth's bedside. So people could indulge in something like this, indulge in a hoax, knowing that it wasn't true. That was part of the fun, being able to say how could anybody fall for this? I sure didn't.
4: One of the other things that's very reminiscent of the Sisters Fox story is that it's still unclear exactly what was making these knocking or rapping sounds. Uh, Some suggest that it was ventriloquism. And, of course, later there was the board that was introduced, so maybe that played a part in it. I guess probably the only one who knows for sure, at least about the board part of it, is Elizabeth Parsons, but little is known about her later life. She probably got married twice, the second time to a gardener, but we don't know much of the detail.
3: I mean, what a ridiculous childhood she (laughs) had. Right, (laughs) I'm imagining maybe she'd be eager to put that behind her uh, after so much after the crowds the duke of york at your bedside when you're 11 trying to wait for ghosts to appear i bet she probably got a
4: lot better sleep
3: yes later she on probably in life. spent most of her later life catching up on sleep we can we can think of it that way one thing i came across while while looking into this story it sounds like it might be sort of the madame valois equivalent in London. So, you know, we talked about that being the quintessential ghost story you hear if you go on like a ghost tour of New Orleans. So I'd really like to hear from our London listeners or anybody who's even just visited and taken a ghost tour. Is this something that is still a big deal there? Because I hadn't heard of of this ghost until pretty recently. Me neither. (laughs) It's it's an interesting one and, and one that does tie in... Pretty clearly to a lot of our other shows, though.
4: And scratching Fanny, I think scratching Fanny makes a fun addition to this little family of ghosts that we've collected this month so far.
3: It sounds like it would be a good, um, like, humorous band <laughs> or something. What would you call it? Like a parody, parody musician or yeah, something? Maybe. I also really like Accused by a Ghost. If we're going to talk about band name, <laughs> I think Accused by a Ghost. You could do all novelty Halloween music. Maybe that's what we'll be doing next year, Jablena.
4: Novelty Halloween music.
3: Novelty (laughs) Halloween music. All month long. It's promising.
4: All right, so what do we have for listener mail this week, Sarah?
3: We have turnip themed mail. Turnips. I'm sure that's intriguing to you because you don't know what I'm talking about. No, I have no <laughs> idea
4: what you're talking about. That is true.
3: So, Kristen and I, as you know, did an episode on the history of trick-or-treating, mm-hmm. and probably my favorite fact from that episode was that before people carved pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns, they carved turnips. And we oh, of those course be rather small. Yes, and jack-o'-lanterns. And difficult to carve. We spec- over that being difficult and sure enough we did hear from a few listeners confirming our suspicions. The first one is Derek in Dublin, Ireland. He wrote, uh, he wrote in an email and said, Greetings from Ireland. I'm a big fan of the podcast after discovering it over the summer and raiding the massive archives to keep me awake on long drives. I was also delighted when you covered the history of Halloween on a recent episode, not least because you looked at the tradition of using turnips as jack-o'-lanterns. A couple years ago, my father-in-law decided to revive this tradition, much to his family's amusement. There are a few pros and cons he learned to using a turnip. First of all, it takes a lot more effort to carve a face into the turnip. He was whittling away for at least a couple hours. Also, over the course of the night, it actually cooked from the heat of the candle. That was really funny to me. Wow. On the plus side, this made it look genuinely scary in the window. By midnight, it looked rather like a headhunter trophy, with a little bit of smoke for extra creepiness. I asked him for any advice to pass on to your listeners. He said, would-be turnip listeners should get a big roundy one, quote, and be prepared for some tough carving. So (laughs) that was good practical information. We also got a note, though, from David. This was actually a Facebook comment. I thought it would be fun to throw one of those in. He was also writing in on turnips, and he said, you mentioned that in the past people hollowed out turnips instead of pumpkins and speculated that it must have been tough. I can confirm that they are incredibly difficult to hollow out. Growing up in England in the 1970s, pumpkins were exotic and expensive items, so most children hollowed out turnips. (laughs) There were lots of injured hands from the knife slipping on the incredibly tough flesh of the turnip. It took hours to hollow out and craft a good turnip head. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Many years later, when I hollowed out my first pumpkin, I couldn't believe how easy it was. It was like a light went on saying, now this is how it's supposed to be. Nowadays in England, children hollow out pumpkins for Halloween. They don't know how lucky they are. So I thought Mm -hmm. that both of these messages from Derek and from David were pretty hilarious Uh, makes you appreciate pumpkins a lot more I know it makes me appreciate my life of carving pumpkins and and working with gourds instead of tough root vegetables.
4: (laughs) Yeah, especially if you're like me and you have a lot of mess-ups or you end up forgetting and wait too long to carve your pumpkin and then you have to come up with a lot of pumpkin recipes. Sounds better to me than having to come up with a lot of turnip recipes.
3: I I like turnips. I like them, but I definitely prefer pumpkins. I mean, if I'm going to go all out. Turnips are good when they are small. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing, um, as the advice that we got from Derek's father-in-law, that would not make a good carving turnip. So if you just forgot to carve your turnips one year tough luck.
4: Well, if you have any more helpful advice for us on how to use our fall vegetables (laughs) or, you know, Halloween traditions in your area of the world, please write to us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com or you can look us up on Facebook and we're also on Twitter at History.
3: Also, if you want to learn a little bit more about ghosts or Ghostbusters, I think Dablina almost cracked up a few times because I said lines that sounded a little bit like they could be out of Ghostbusters. (laughs) We do have articles on both. We do. We have How Ghosts Work and How Ghostbusters
4: Work, and you can look them up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this
1: and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
4: Just most powerful place on Earth. A fiction
2: podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
3: Be served and die for
2: Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts